and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, Pippa is away this week, so she has actually left me in charge to get us underway on this week's episode. And I'm very privileged to take over the reins because it is actually our 100th episode of the Horse and Hound podcast. If you are one of our listeners who has been with us since the very beginning, thank you very much for your support. And of course, welcome to all of those who have found our podcast since. We hope you continue to enjoy it. Our interview this week is with dressage rider Becky Moody, talking about her triple winner from the Winter Dressage Championships, as well as her other upcoming young horses and why she has learned that first impressions can be deceiving. You get to think you have a feel for what is required and what horses have that you know that star quality from quite a young age but actually what I'm learning the more that I do this is that what I'm learning is you haven't a clue. (laughs) I'll also be chatting to our news team about the latest on the equestrian staffing crisis, developments in racehorse welfare and aftercare and of course the building excitement around Babington Horse Trials which is just around the corner. Finally, bits and bitting expert Trisha Nassau-Williams will give us her insight into the different materials used in bits. What are the different options and what are the pros and cons of using them? Keep in mind, whatever you do choose, if you're competing, take care to read the rule books because there are different restrictions with some of the options as to what you can and cannot use. More from Trisha later. For now, button up your jacket and let's get going. Our guest today is Becky Moody. Becky is one of Britain's most successful dressage riders as well as a very popular trainer and she runs Moody Dressage near Sheffield with her sister Hannah. Becky represented Britain at four under 21 European Championships and has since been very successful internationally with her former top horse Carincio, whom she trained up to Grand Prix and competed on the Nations Cup team at Hickstead in 2017. She has since achieved top international Grand Prix placings with FAMCA PF, as well as many regional and national titles across the levels. Most recently, Becky secured a hat-trick at the NAF five-star Winter Dressage Championships at Hartbury with her upcoming superstar, Jaegerbomb. Becky, hello, how are you? Hi, I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yes, I'm excellent. Thank you so much. Let's talk a little bit about Jaegerbomb first, or Bomber, as I know he is called at home. He had a yep. stunning run at the Winter Dressage Championships a couple of weeks ago now. Picked up wins at Pre-St. George, into one, into one freestyle. Looked absolutely fabulous, like a real, <laughs> real star. But I know he didn't always start off like that, did he? No, he, he didn't. You know, he, he's a really interesting horse. Um, so I bred him. Uh, he is out of a jazz mare that uh, I bought through the Equine Elite auction in Holland uh, as a youngster and trained her and she was pretty much ready to go Grand Prix and then unfortunately mm. had a, a field injury. Um, so she was retired, but luckily being a mare, uh, I was able to use her for breeding for a few years. So okay. had three foals. And he is the third of three. It was a fascinating study in breeding and, and how, you know, the, the traits that come through from the mare, the things that come from the stallions. And, you know, you couldn't actually have had three more different horses, if I'm totally oh, really? honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, he, as a young horse, he has always had a great brain. Like he was always really, really trainable, very easy to back, you know, all that side of it. But he was 
not the most exciting. You know, he, okay. was, he was just a nice horse, but he didn't have a brilliant engine and he wasn't particularly like elastic and supple in how he moved okay. so you know being completely honest if i'd gone and looked at him as a four-year-old i wouldn't have bought him right okay um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know yeah it, it really is and i think you know it's it's he's just such a good example of how it is very much about a horse's temperament and yeah. trainability and you know he's he was correct in how he moved but it, it, it's his brain and as his body has got stronger obviously he's developed more but yeah. it's it's not it's not developed his movement it's developed his strength and the strength has helped make him sharper and his that combined with his rideability is what has enabled me to make him you know to, to, to turn him into the horse that he is becoming now and and sort of some people like oh you know so mean to say that he was dull and and, and you know it's not I'm not saying it because you know I didn't think that he was a lovely horse but you know we've over the, a lot of years we've produced many horses from you know youngsters mm. pretty much every horse that I have you know had bar famca actually you know i've had them all since they were youngsters just about three-year-olds or yeah. you know, i've produced all of them and you get to think you have a feel for what is required and what horses have that you know that star quality mm. from quite a young age but actually what i'm learning the more that i do this <laughs> is that what i'm learning is you haven't a clue <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, it, it, you can think you've got a superstar and then when it comes to the more uh, taxing work, you know, and you're really asking for the compression mm. or, you know, their, their brains just can't quite cope with it yeah. or, you know, their, their bodies aren't designed to do it. They struggle to, you know, they, they just find that work more difficult. More and more I am feeling that it is about their rideability, uh, to such a huge degree. Yeah, I loved your quote from Hartbury about the fact that he doesn't have exceptional movement, but he has such a good brain, you can train him to be exceptional. And yeah. I think so many people that have also have, you know, really nice horses, but not yeah. flashy or spectacular, yeah. um, will take heart from hearing about, you know, your yeah, success with him. Exactly. And, you know, that's why I say he wasn't a particularly exciting horse as a young mm. horse, because you know, I really did. I mean, I didn't actually put him, like I didn't advertise him, but, you know, I kind of made the decision to sell him yeah. and started thinking about spreading the word a little bit. And then for one reason or another, it just didn't happen. So, you know, it's it goes to show that we all make mistakes. <laughs> but now the, the problem that I have now is that like, oh no, I can't sell it because it might be really good if I keep trading it. <laughs> <laughs> so I slowly collect like horse after horse after horse. Uh, oh gosh. And, you know, sometimes I need to be a little bit more business-minded and actually of sell course. some of them. But, um... So tell us a bit about Bomber's character now, um, what, you know, he's particularly good at now he is training up through the levels and getting so much stronger I know you're excited for him yeah so I mean I think um he has always had a capacity for the the PF like you know just from a from a, a young although that's not that's not actually true probably again like four or five years old okay. couldn't actually be bothered to do that um <laughs> but uh, you know as he got a little bit older 
you could see that ability there. You know, if you sort of gave him a touch with the whip, it was quite a good reaction. But then the thing that has surprised me, I mean, you can see it in things like the prize givings. You know, mm. horses have different reactions. Mm. So, um, you know, if you if you talk about, so if you look at Carincio, who, you know, obviously was a, you know, a great horse, but his reaction in an exciting or tense situation was just like right see you i'm going you know leap <laughs> yeah, about jump sideways <laughs> launch himself around i mean maggie jackman still like despairs of me to this day because of all the sponsors that we nearly flattened in prize givings but um you know bomb's reaction is okay i'm just gonna pee off this is cool i'm gonna pee off you know, it's his kind of go-to excited mm. uh, thing. And, you know, I mean, I think that's what makes me really excited about the kind of Grand Prix horse that he could be. Yeah. Uh, because without a doubt, it is the horses that the, the Piaf Passage work is where you have to have the good ability. Yeah. If you want to have a really top class Grand Prix horse, you know, yeah. you can... I think if you've if you've got a good horse, you know, you can teach the pirouettes, you can teach the changes, you can teach the half passes and the extensions and things like that. But mm. again, it's about that mental attitude towards real acceptance of, of sort of the compression and the adjustability, you know, that's required for the Piaf Passage. That's what makes a top horse. So, you know, that's that's why he makes me quite excited. Oh, so lovely. And what is next for him? What what do you have sort of next in the in the calendar with his So name at, on it? at the moment he's just on a little mini hacking break. Okay. So he um he's having a, a couple of weeks of just chilling and hacking and taking lovely. all the other ones out hacking because he thinks that's great fun. Um <laughs> and he I, I don't know, you know, he's he's pretty much ready to do an into two. Um, he could absolutely run through, you know, an into two now. I will see. He'll maybe do one a little bit later in the season. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm so conscious that I don't want to push him. But mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, he does find the work quite easy. So why not, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I have two other horses that are the same age as him that are nowhere near ready to do that right. kind of thing. He's so, eight, isn't he? Yeah, he's eight. So, you know, he is he is young to be doing a test like that, but he's physically and mentally, you know, in, in a good place. So yeah. I, I hope that he'll do that. Maybe, uh, you know, the, the CDI at Hartbury possibly or um, maybe Bolsworth. I'm not sure. But, yeah, we'll just see where the year takes us. He's quali qualified into one for the Nationals already. Oh, good um, stuff. So, yeah. So... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of your other exciting horses. I know he's only one of um, several that you've got at the moment keeping you busy. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, you know, I, I'm really feeling incredibly lucky at the minute. I've got probably the best string of horses that, you know, I've, I've ever had. Um, so I have two other eight-year-olds, Jack Diamond, mm -hmm. uh, who is by a styling called Electron, who is by Ampere, uh, out of a diamond hit mare. Okay. Uh, and he is another really interesting horse because he, uh, so we got him as a three-year-old. He was a stallion. Um, he's owned by my uh, wonder owner, Joe Cooper, who's, you know, been a real incredible support to me. Um, oh, so she, we, she bought him as a three-year-old and um, he, so he was entire when we bought him and he was, he was funny, you know, he wasn't outwardly uh, stallion-y. 
Okay. Uh, but actually, I discovered when he deposited me pretty much <laughs> at Carl Hester's feet at uh, Hartbury at the, the semi-finals for the four-year-olds. I was like, of all the people to fall off in front of. Yeah, Carl and Charlotte, both there. Uh, so, yeah, um, he's an in, he was an inward worrier of a stallion. So, you know, he wasn't outwardly, he didn't neigh very much. He wasn't particularly like... You, sort of how you would see a typical stallion but he yeah. definitely bottled it up until oh. he couldn't anymore chap. <laughs> um, so he we did actually end up having him he was cut as a five-year-old just coming five um and then I didn't do anything with him until last year when he was seven um largely because I literally couldn't get him on the bed <laughs> Uh, I so love your honesty. We well, I know, but you know, this is, I really believe that we have to be honest yeah, because this is, agree. you know, people, people are going through these things mm -hmm. and, you know, I kind of feel like, again, it's another story where there's maybe a glimmer of hope at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> um, no, you know, I, I could, so he's incredible moving horse, like okay. the most scopy moving horse that I've ever had, but he was physically not able to deal with that he wasn't strong enough and I think because he wasn't strong enough through his body to deal with the movement he was then quite difficult through his back and when he was mm. quite difficult through his back he was quite difficult in the mouth um and I really was pretty much on the verge of of saying I just you know I don't think that this horse is is meant to be doing this so I'm in a very lucky situation that I work with my sister Hannah and yes like Hannah I just I don't know I can't do this and uh, I just get into her for a while <laughs> and uh, Hannah ended up taking over the ride on him probably just for like maybe three months three or four mm. months possibly and it was definitely the start of a turning point with him I think a slightly okay. different uh, different approach yeah. in the sense that she was maybe slightly more not that I wasn't patient with him, but I, you know, I would be quite demanding in terms, you know, when I ride my horses, I am educating them. I am wanting to produce them to ultimately be, you know, the very best that they can be. Yeah. And I think she probably just took a little more time, didn't ask as much, um, you know, and, and got the horse feeling a little more like maybe he could do it. And when she got him a little more on the bit, I stole him back. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> I suppose it goes to show how how someone who potentially is almost less close to the situation maybe yes you know he's not her horse can actually then bring something different out of him yeah absolutely and and just a difference you know although we we sort of train very much along the same lines and you know she isn't as ambitious and competitive mm. as I am mm. by nature so I think you know she is just prepared to take a little a little less yeah yeah that, yeah. yeah and some horses and, need that don't they for, yeah, a, for a time absolutely you know and, and again this is like why we have to be honest about these things and it's just because you're not working with a horse at that point in time it doesn't mean that you can't do it or the horse can't do it it is sometimes just that your combination at that point in time might not quite be working if that makes sense yeah yeah um so yeah, she she did a bit with him, and then I I 
duly stolen back and uh he is a really exciting horse i think um okay he still needs more time yeah. uh you know he's he's another one that needs probably a couple more years i think before he really really comes into his own but you know he has the capacity to be an 80 percent horse i believe oh wow if, yeah you know he has that basic sort of movement and but there's a lot of work obviously there's a lot of work to mm. do before we get to that point but he could be he could be if we can get everything right oh exciting um, stuff so yeah he's exciting and then uh, the other eight-year-old is james bond so he yes. is a stallion uh by desperado mm -hmm. out of a feeder tans mare okay so both those two i quite i quite like the kind of combination of dutch and german blood yeah it's, yeah it's i think it's quite a good balance of you know the, the dutch blood gives that little bit more um sometimes sort of expression and extravagance but the german blood brings brings a bit more uh a, a little more level-headed and a little bit uh more solid okay um so yeah he is uh he's just started small tour this year so he went he won the elementary nationals in like 2019 i think and then i just needed to spend time training him really um you know i think sort of the, there are i'm in that very very lucky position which you know i do really appreciate and recognize where if i feel like a horse isn't in a place to take it out and compete it i don't need to because i have others that i'm taking out and competing yeah. so you know and and joe who owns him as well you know was was very good about saying it's fine you know if you don't feel like he's going how you want him to to take him out then don't it's okay it doesn't matter uh so you know i did just spend a couple of years just just training him through yeah. through covid and everything okay. he's the kind of horse that you know if i'm taking him out he needs a little bit of the consistency of going out sure okay um, rather than once in a once in a while yeah so so you know that actually uh, as weird a time as it was uh you know it was it was quite a good time just to spend training the horses a little bit yeah yeah of course um so yeah the three of those are, are very very exciting um You've got a mare at Grand Prix as well. Yeah, right? so Famke, yeah, yeah, Famke is, uh, so she's a 12 year old by Houston out of a cabochon mare. So okay. sort of really old Dutch blood. Mm, yeah, um, interesting. And she was, uh, I was actually looking for a horse for a client in Holland. I get quite a lot. I've done quite a lot of work with uh, Rebecca Dudley, who's a, a agent, mm. and um, she had lined up this one for the client that I was looking for. And unfortunately, she wasn't quite right for the client. She was a little too green. The the basic training wasn't established enough for what they were looking for. But I just had there was something about her that I I really <laughs> really liked. <laughs> so um, I duly rang up Joe and was like joe <laughs> uh so yeah and she's the only horse that uh i have got that was older so she was just eight when we got her eight eight coming nine that's um, interesting having, yeah having had and, so and, many and youngsters it, yes and and you know it, it was interesting because uh i i actually kept her at home for two years while okay i basically undid everything and redid it how <laughs> i wanted to do it sure. a little bit more um and i think you know that's it's people think that you you go get an older horse and it's just ready to to rock and roll and it's mm. so not very often you know whether it's just developing the partnership between the two of you or whether it's slightly uh you know she'd she'd been educated 
well in in some things but there were things that i felt i needed to sort of strip right back and and mm -hmm. just start again with a little bit you know things that i would have done with a young horse yeah were for me missing in her basic training um so yeah she's been another really good you know learning learning horse for me uh, and and came at a you know a, a good time i sort of had carincio but he actually had an injury and was off for a, a little while um so you know she was she was really cool a cool horse to kind of enable me to get out at that level again because it's so hard you know it's so hard at that level you kind of oh my god you think as you're going up through the levels like oh you know this is difficult and you get to small you know your, your aim is is small tour and you're like oh small tour so hard and you know i'm I, i'm at the point where i'm like oh, i love small tour it's great i just <laughs> it's great it's so you know but then the Grand Prix for me is just, it's a different ball game yeah, altogether. It's, tough. You know. it's a tough world, isn't it? Yeah, it's just really hard to do. And, you know, there are so many factors uh, that are, that make it hard and, you know, keeping a, a top athlete sound. And um, I'm so lucky in that I have got a few really good horses. So, you know, if one's off for a little while, it's not i'm i'm lucky that i can have the others and keep going and you know give the one that needs the time the time but you know a lot of people who have only one horse you know when that horse is off with an injury it's very difficult to deal with yeah um, yeah especially know, if you haven't maybe had a lot of years of experience at that top yeah, level and yeah, yeah. absolutely you know what whatever level you're at mm. you know your horse needs six months off it's a very difficult thing to deal with mentally it's difficult to come back you know afterwards in a way when you're worried about them and you're trying to bring them yeah. back into work and not do anything wrong and yeah. you know so it, it is yeah but it's just part and parcel of what we do of course do you have any sort of advice maybe that you would you would give to people who perhaps you know have had a horse off for a number of months with an injury and they are feeling you know maybe a bit down about it or very overwhelmed at the prospect of coming coming back to competition is there anything you'd say to someone in that sort of situation apart from the fact that we've all been there you know <laughs> i think every every top rider many many riders yeah. you know you have to go through that at some point and i think ev everyone just has to use um you know the, the time if you're not able to ride your horse still try and stay involved you know go watch your coach riding, go to good shows, mm. uh, you know, whatever it might be, keep being, although in some ways you feel like you want to cut yourself off, you know, go and be inspired and learn because there's still so much that you can learn, yeah. um, you know, even when you're not able to ride. And then I think in terms of bringing the horse, uh, you know, back into work, I mean, I uh, have a, a, a great vet who I, you know, <laughs> work with quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And you know, I I trust him. Yeah, uh, and and that is a really important thing to have, I think. And you know, when I've sort of had a horse that's had an injury, you know, I'll I'll speak to Peter and sort of say, okay, you know, what what's our plan, and we'll we'll do you know, re-scans or re-x-rays or whatever it is on a regular basis to make sure that that horse not only has got to the point that we can bring it back into work. But then as we're bringing the, you know, as we're upping the workload, keep checking it, keep making sure it's okay. So that it puts your mind at rest and you know that you're doing the right thing. I think, sure. you know, one of the most common things that I see is that people, uh, you know, bringing horses back into work. There is obviously a point where, um, 
you have to a little bit be like right okay they're okay we have to crack on we have Mm. to push them Mm. because if we don't push them we're never gonna make sure that it's that they're not actually going to be going well enough to make sure that everything is is right and as it should be you know sometimes somebody can be saying to me I just don't think he feels right still you know I don't think he's pushing enough Mm. uh you know he still feels a bit and and it actually it's just a case of they're being too tentative with how they ride the horse because they're worried about the injury so then you know they're not getting it in front of the leg enough or they're not making it let go and be through enough so the horse doesn't feel very good and actually all they need to do is have the confidence to get on and ride and commit to doing what they're doing and then suddenly the horse actually feels so much, much better. better yeah and I guess that's so, where having a, a really good trainer comes in and someone to yeah trust a, a com- well. combination of a vet that you trust and a coach that you know a, a trainer that you you work with um you know that between you you can make a plan and feel like you're in a good place yeah really good advice and of course you've got a great uh, a great business going in Moody Dressage with your sister Hannah. Um you both started off in the pony club is that right? <laughs> we did. Yeah. So <laughs> I was actually born up in Scotland. Oh right, okay. Um, and and lived up there until I was uh, 6. So I started off in the Eglinton Pony Club and then uh when we moved down and and Eglinton of course is uh famous for its mounted games team yes. which was very <laughs> very much not my forte <laughs> did you do it at any point or did you uh, always stay clear no no I mean the the thought of trying to vault on even like an 11-2 would nah it was just never going to happen um so so no and then uh, I was in Rockwood Pony Club when uh we moved down here and I mean uh, I absolutely loved, I loved doing pony club stuff. I mean, I did everything. I was like total geek. So, you know, the <laughs> pony club quiz team. And, oh my gosh, amazing. Uh, we did like the to triathlon mm-hmm. and I did quite a bit of eventing. I mean, I look back and look at what I jumped now on my 14-2 pony and can't quite <laughs> believe it. Um, but it was just a really good all-round grounding. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've sort of, we've, I've been really lucky in that we've always had uh you know a yard at home where I've had ponies but I had to you know I'd get up and muck out before school I'd ride them mm-hmm. all when I got home so yeah. you know it was a really important part of me looking after them and sure I used to um I used to do things like when I was about seven plat up to go out hacking because I just loved <laughs> flying up <laughs> oh that's amazing <laughs> and, I, and I can remember one pony club rally where I learned how to do I'd have probably I don't know been like nine or maybe ten and um I learned how to sew plaits and that was like one of the greatest <laughs> pony club rallies ever <laughs> it's quite and a defining moment isn't it learning yeah to sew no, your it, it is it is and I still love plaiting like I plait my own horses most of the time oh that's so lovely yeah so there's, there's not very many people that that plait my horses but uh. <laughs> you've got quite high standards when it comes to plaiting <laughs> I have because I think it, it you can actually really change how a horse looks mm. by how you plait it and that sounds silly but you you know you can just change neck shapes and things like that a little bit so it Mm. is you know it's definitely an important part of it but it's also just like my prep time and chill time yeah 
yeah my going through my test time and all that okay yeah Yeah. and so when did it become dressage when did you give up jumping crazy things on 14 two ponies and decide dressage was the one so I mean I I actually got um the pony that I did event and kept eventing until I was probably 14 15 he did also do um so I was reserved for the pony team with him and uh did like the pony talent spotting yeah. 100 years ago um and I actually dread to think how many years ago it was but um yeah I did that with him and I think I think it was a combination of he although I did event him he wasn't the most pleasurable to go cross country okay on. <laughs> uh, and I had a couple of ponies we had a, a, a stud really local to us that bred Welsh ponies I actually got the the first one of those I think we got when I was seven. The pony was three and I was seven and Hannah was 17. So Hannah's 10 years older than me. So somehow they thought my parents and Hannah that this was an excellent idea that we'd get this three-year-old Welsh (laughs) pony and that, that Hannah and I would back it. So yeah, she used to chase me around on this baby with the lunch whip. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, not, not not really. He was a legend, but um, they were definitely more. He he was a real cool little dressage pony. So you know, I did my kind of first pony club area teams and things on mm-hmm. him. Um, and and I think like I I did really love the jumping, but quite honestly, even at that point, although I jumped quite big stuff, I. I wasn't brave enough to really go for it. Uh, But I also think you are influenced by the horses that you ride. And I definitely had a couple that were better, better at the dressage than they were at the jumping. Um, And I I got one horse when I was probably my first horse when I was about 15, who was amazing jumping, (laughs) absolutely amazing. He actually went on to be an international event horse oh wow um, okay but yeah he was really cool and he's the only horse I remember taking him to Summerford um and doing the cross-country schooling there and it was just it was insane but by that point I'd already caught the dressage bug a bit too yeah. much so you know even though he was I, I think if, if any horse was going to make me go eventing as you know properly him. it would have been him um and he didn't <laughs> so uh yeah I think that the love for dressage was just there oh well you've had an amazing career so far um we obviously talked about it a little bit earlier how many how many national titles have you won now have you have you kept count no I don't I don't know I, the last count it was about 18 or 19 so I guess it's over, over 20 now with those last last few added on oh um, that is amazing but, well no but it's a it's a huge team effort isn't it yeah. you know it's um I I am so lucky with the horses that I've had along the way and you know the, the thing again is like those horses that some of those horses that have won national titles were fairly um Again, you know, not spectacular horses, but just horses that you were able to really train. And, you know, certainly as a a young rider, having fairly, you know, I, I had, yeah, I know I had lovely horses, but I also had horses that you needed to squeeze every mark out of. And those are the horses that teach you so, so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you can get 70% on a horse that is basically a seven horse, yeah you know then it it teaches you to actually hopefully be able to get much more than that on the horse that is more than a seven horse so you know that was definitely very important for me in my development 
Yeah. But yeah, you know, the, the, the number of people that are involved in this, like the guys that, you know, that work for us at home who are brilliant and vets and farriers and physios and, and coaches, you know, I've worked with David Hunt for, uh, I don't even know, a lot of years <laughs> now, um, 20, probably 20 years now. And, you know, he is, he has been a proper mentor to me, not just, you know, not just a trainer. He is very much, uh, a mentor with everything um and you know having him and having carl uh you know they're they're a a good a good combination uh Mm. quite quite different but with the same sort of end goals and you know slightly different ways of of getting to them but i sort of feel when i'm a bit older i can use to you know i think when, when you're younger having two slightly contrasting methods would be really difficult yeah Um, it's true but actually you know as a sort of older and a little more experienced now you can you can take you can take the bits from both of them and actually the combination works for me really really well they focus on slightly different things which overall make me make me better but yeah Well, it definitely sounds as though something is working. Becky, it's been so great to have you on the Horse and Hound podcast today. Congratulations again on your recent successes. And uh, we're very excited to see you out and about again this year. Thank you very much. This week for our news review, I'm joined by news editor Eleanor Jones and senior news writer Lucy Elder. Eleanor, let's come over to you first. Firstly, how's your week been? Well, I think I am going to put in an official complaint to BBC Weather or God or someone (laughs) because we've got like so many midges that's like being in a swamp somewhere in South America. But at the same time, it's so blimmin freezing. I did 10 minutes of canter this morning and kept my coat on. It is funny weather, isn't it? It is. Uh, it is. Oh. It is hot in the sun, but really very cold Freezing. out of it, and windy as well. What strange weather! Yeah. Anyway, you have written a very interesting piece this week as part of our ongoing coverage of the equestrian staffing crisis. Why don't you talk us through the latest developments? Yeah, so as uh, sort of readers and, and listeners to the podcast will know, we've spoken, we've been contacted by a number of former grooms who who got in touch to to tell us their stories and, and why they've left the industry. And as you say, we've covered the fact that there is a bit of a lack of staff uh, in the industry at the moment. And we were then contacted by a couple of employers. So we spoke to Ali Dane, who runs Hurston Dressage and Eventing in Oxfordshire. And she was saying, you know, all her staff are legally and fairly employed, but she's got a business, a corporate background. And she was saying that she thinks gives her an advantage because not only does she sort of know the law, but also she has like a business plan and she checks her costs all the time and she makes sure she charges enough. Yeah, of course, it makes such a difference. And I know you spoke to um, Victoria Panason as well, the eventer, and she made some good points about how employers can provide employee benefits that are not necessarily just high salaries, didn't she? Yeah, so so all of her staff are obviously employed within the law as well. And, and although she may not be able to pay sort of London office wages, as she said, she she said they, they all live on site and she provides everything, sheets, towels, cleaning stuff. They all get home-cooked Italian food and homegrown oh veg, which sounds amazing. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> and, um, and she pays for them to go to Pilates every week and other stuff like she was talking to someone who works in a different industry but also events. And, and this person was saying how hard it is to fit in competing and paying her entry 
countries, but all her staff compete in their work hours. They go cross-country schooling in their work hours, you know, and also stuff like all the stuff she buys is in bulk and they can come in with that. So she's saying, although the payslip may not be huge, they are getting all this other stuff as well so mm. she was just saying and also she was saying like I don't want to put people off coming into the industry there are good bosses about yeah absolutely and that's very much the the message from from this latest piece that you've written isn't it mm. and what yeah. did the equestrian employers association have to say about all this so I spoke to the president Talis Matson and he was saying you know that at the current the current situation is a job seekers market because um and he's saying businesses are having to put their wages up and work harder to re mm -hmm. retain staff but he's saying yes he absolutely agrees there are plenty of good employers and and he thinks those are the ones that will will shine through because they will keep their staff for sure and I mean it will certainly be very interesting to see how it all develops over to you now, Lucy. What have you been up to this week? I have been having a fairly non-horsey week, actually, this week. I've, um, before badminton, sort of getting my, it sounds really ridiculous, but getting my nails done. <laughs> really nice and really relaxing. Very exciting. Especially when we've got sort of very horsey hands um, to go and get them, them all tidied up. And I can't stop looking at them, actually. <laughs> Long may they last, but hopefully they are quite quite durable. So, yeah, I've been um, yeah, enjoying a pamper, really, uh, before it all gets, um, all gets super busy for badminton that's lovely I'm sure there are a lot of uh, a lot of other horsey people out there who will be very appreciative of what a treat getting your nails done is <laughs> yeah absolutely and this week you have been reporting on calls that have been made to improve the welfare of racehorses haven't mm. you just tell us a little bit about that I have. So this is actually the second part of the International Forum for the Aftercare of Racehorses. So I covered the first part a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And this week was looking again at what action the global industry needs to consider or make to, to be future proof, really. And again, it covered a huge amount in two hours. So I'm just going to pull out the headline points. Mm. There was some really interesting debate, discussion raised by an Australian owner breeder who called on the thoroughbred world to really look again at every step, every stage through the uh, through the lens of aftercare to, to kind of challenge itself as to whether it would do things differently. So not saying, you know, we we must change or this has to be done this way or or anything like that but just to kind of have that filter when we're to reassess constantly what how things are done um mm. from you know the stage of how horses are bred when they're broken in their regular training would any single step along the way would things be done differently and he also made a call for contributions to aftercare funding to again come from every step of a horse's life for example he suggested that a trust could be established by um, by the breeder and those involved in um, in the horse's breeding and then when he's sold that would move with him sort of be sold with him at auction and new owners could contribute and perhaps it could even be open to public contributions as well so it kind of just sort of suggestions ideas and it got me really thinking as well mm. there was a great presentation too from um, covering the thoroughbred makeover retired racehorse project which is in the US and that's a training competition for horses in their first year of out out of racing and it's got it's got enormous prize money with it and a huge amount of disciplines and it's not a kind of finished article competition they call it a training competition because the the aim is that it rewards and highlights 
good training and the importance of a, a good foundation really for okay. horses that have taken that step you know left racing and there's a marketplace and a sales side and you don't have to sell your horse but again it's kind of creating that supply and demand and which touched on another really kind of integrated aspect which is you know value and price and of those horses and what I thought was interesting was what they're they've kind of done a little bit of tracking and seeing the prices and they are seeing you know value and demand for for horses coming into the makeover project is going up and also the value of horses you know after that that year of training has been put into them as well is 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 good so I thought that was another really interesting way of of looking at how to give horses a good education how to promote that and um and yeah future proofing the industry really it was really interesting yeah it sounds it and there was some interesting insight from the hong kong jockey club as well wasn't there Yes, there was. And this was fascinating as the racing and equestrian industries over there are so connected and it really highlighted the benefits of traceability and consistent access to veterinary records, which is something that we write about quite often in Horse and Hound. And, you know, not saying this doesn't happen in other places in the world, but seeing how it is just, you know, it's so joined up there, it's Mm. across the board um, and how it works in practice was, was really fascinating to see. So... I mean, of course, all racehorses are imported to Hong Kong. They don't have a breeding side. And this was a side that I thought was really interesting is that owners pay an import duty, which I believe is around sort of £10,000 to bring them in. And then at the end of the horse's racing career, they can either opt to export them and that duty's returned or they can sign them over to the Hong Kong Jockey Club and then that money will go towards the cost of their rehabilitation and rehoming. So... Again, because the industries are so linked, they know the whole background, they've got the whole veterinary records, they have an idea of where that horse might go and they've got um, some really strong connections, again, with with the equestrian world um, and also um, overseas as well. So it was really kind of highlighting the benefits of connections both within the racing industry, within the racing and equestrian industry and also um, the international side as well. It was it was really fascinating because I didn't really know a huge amount about how, how it works over there. So, mm. yeah, I learned a lot listening to that. Yeah, it sounds it. And I mean it sounds as though we can we can generally learn quite a lot from from how they do things so let's hope that appropriate action can be taken i'm sure we are all very invested in future proofing the racing industry and finally i know that you've also been covering the building excitement around badminton horse trials which is nearly upon us haven't you i have yes and of course the 28th of april issue is our badminton preview so mm. you definitely don't want to miss this week's copy and on the news side there was a big reminder this week for everyone thinking about planning their planning their trip to badminton to remember that there are no tickets on the gate this year uh, so you have to buy them in advance and i heard from badminton this week that they may potentially sell out on saturday so do do get your tickets bought and um yeah enjoy the week i can't wait oh so exciting that it is nearly upon us and just it's wonderful that it's back running again in 2022 thank you both eleanor and lucy speak to you soon Now we're going over to Trisha Nassau-Williams. Trisha is a qualified saddler, saddle fitter, bit and bridle fitter and liveryman of the Worshipful Company of Lorreners. She has lectured in Lorrenry, that is bits and bridling, to saddlery students at Keppel Manor College for many years. 
Having previously run her own retail saddlery shop specialising in lonery and saddle fitting, she now works as the field officer and lonery consultant for the British Equestrian Trade Association. Over to you, Tricia. In this episode, we're going to look at the different materials that bits can be made of. There was a time when bits generally were just produced in stainless steel. There have always been many other options, but not nearly as many as we seem to have on the market today. So what are the different options and what are the pros and cons of using them and how to identify them? So we're going to look at the various different options in turn and just give you a little bit of detail about each one. So stainless steel is a very common option. And when you're buying stainless steel, horse bits or any laurinry, so it could be spurs, it could be stirrups, etc. It should be 18.8 stainless steel. And in fact, if you look carefully on some of the labels, you may notice that it says stainless steel 18.8. That is because that um, it is predominantly iron, but it's also got 18% chromium and 8% nickel. And it's a really practical option because it's very unlikely to rust, oxidise. It's easy to clean and maintain. It's strong and fit for purpose and it's bright but it is a colder more neutral metal than some of the other options. You very commonly see bits if they're not completely made of stainless steel that they will in fact um, be using stainless steel perhaps on the cheek so if you had a different option in the mouthpiece it may still be likely that the stainless steel is on the outer edges of the bit and you can identify it because it looks a silver colour and it's a harder metal as it were and it is cool to the touch but still a popular option to use today. Another very very popular option that we see in all of our saddleries now is the higher copper content bits which there are quite a few different ones on the market but the fact of the higher copper alloy is that it is very helpful with its level of thermal conductivity. So, so if you were to hold stainless steel and a high copper content bit in another hand, you would find that the high copper content one would have warmed up to your hand temperature much, much more quickly than the stainless steel one. And therefore that's a more pleasant experience for the horse. With the high copper content bits, uh, you can identify them very easily because they have a, a warm honey color look to them. It's also has generally a, a more neutral taste and a, a softer, lower impact force. So if it does make contact with the horse's teeth, it's less likely to be damaging to them at all or, or harsh, should I say, harsh on the horse's teeth. Another option, which is also quite popular nowadays, it's been around for many, many years, but has made a, a much greater appearance in the last 15 or 20, is sweet iron. So sweet iron is a a finish that actually oxidizes or in other words it rusts and that's what creates the so-called sweet taste which many horses actually like a lot. It does encourage salivation in the horse's mouth and the idea of creating salivation in the horse's mouth is that we want the horse's mouth to be moist but we're not looking for extremes of salivation, we're not looking for seeing white throth that there's something like that in your horse's mouth, it's an indication that there's an issue or something needs to be looked at more closely but we do want the horses to be uh, moist in the mouth. Sweet iron generally can be easily identified because it will have a sort of a plain rusty looking appearance and some of the new ones that are in the shop will actually have been heat treated um, at the point of manufacture so they have a, a blue finish to them um, but with use that will that will wear off that's just something that's done um, as a finishing item for them. 
Other options can be titanium. The advantage of the titanium, it is very strong and very like and very empathetic with tissue. Uh, most of us hopefully you won't, but you might come across them in time if you ever have a, an artificial joint of some description be using the titanium because it's very light, very strong and very empathetic to tissue. It does tend to have more of a price factor to it very often but it's another another option and titanium will feel very light you'll pick up a bit that looks like a quite a heavy sturdy bit but it will actually be really quite light and tend to have a, a greyish matte looking effect to it. Other options can be just pure copper bits so you would have a bit that with a pure copper layer on top of it and the copper is easily identified because it has um, a much darker almost orangey sort of look to it and the idea of the copper is that not only is it warm in the horse's mouth but again it does encourage salivation so in we're looking for the horse to be encouraged to be moist in his mouth but not over throthy or over wet often you can see uh, with some bits you'll see a stainless steel bit with little copper inlays or even on a roller bit for example where you've got copper and stainless steel together and the thought there is that when you've got uh, copper and stainless steel in a wet environment you'll get a mild electrolytic reaction which again can encourage salivation within the horse's mouth. Following on from that you've got different polymers and different rubbers and different options of that type so a rubber mouth or the happy mouth type bits are uh, polymer type mouths which for some animals that don't just don't like don't go well in in metal that can be an option for them or just introducing a bit etc. With polymers and rubber keep in mind that they're going to be more vulnerable to damage if the horse does catch them in their teeth so as with any bit check them routinely but particularly with these bits and if they have um, caused any damage to the bit by chewing uh, you should really replace them. Two reasons, one because you don't want any weakening through them and the other because you don't want anything that could cause a scuff that on, on the rubber or the polymer that could then affect your horse's mouth. The other point I would add is do just make sure that you get really good quality polymer bits. Some of the less expensive ones are have a more plasticky sort of feel to them and if horses catch them I've seen them be much more inclined to create uh, little catches or little scuff marks if you like on them and those then can actually cause soreness in the horse's mouth so as always buy quality and you'll get what you buy and now on the market you're seeing again bits that are actually covered in leather it's nothing new. I've got some Victorian bits in my collection, driving bits, and they've obviously had their mouthpiece covered with leather. But again, for some horses, it's just the answer and what works best with them. Keep in mind, whatever you do choose to, if you're competing, take care to read the rule books because there are different restrictions with some of the options as to what you can and cannot use. And whatever you select, make sure you've put a little bit of thought and care as to what you're selecting and why and how it might be of most use to you and your horse. So BETA are the British Equestrian Trade Association here to serve you and your horse. To find out many more details about them, please do visit beta-uk.org and look out for the big BETA logo when you shop in store as a sign of a good approved retailer. Thank you, Tricia. Next week, Tricia will be back with her insight into what to look for when buying a new bit. Our interview will be with showing producer Sean Linney, discussing her career with our showing editor, Alex Robinson. And of course, we'll review all the week's news, including Kentucky three-day event. We'll also be previewing next week's Badminton Horse Trials. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate, review and share it in your podcast app to help more people find it and join the Horse and Hound podcast family. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.